Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. With me on the phone today is Andrew Holman, professor at Bridgewater University in Massachusetts. He is the author of many books on the NHL, various aspects of Canadian hockey history and international hockey history. And we're here today to talk about the birth of the NHL. We're celebrating the 100th anniversary in December of 2017 of the NHL, one of the cornerstone institutions of Canadian society, it would appear. And Andy, I'm delighted you can join us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's, uh, let's set the context for this in December of 1917. We, Canada is fully at war. We've lost at least 10,000 soldiers on the battlefield, 10,000 soldiers dead this year alone, 1917. And the, uh, the people who organize professional hockey decide that they need to start a new, a new league. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the way hockey, professional hockey was structured in 1917. There were, there were, were there three leagues at that point in Canada? There were three leagues at that time. Uh, there was the Canadian Hockey Association. There was the Eastern uh, Canada Hockey Association, um, which had uh, merged or had become uh, uh, part of the same organization. There was the uh, Pacific Coast Hockey Association, which had been formed uh, about five years earlier. So uh, this is complicated. There are three leagues. Yeah, and then, of course, there's the NHA, the National Hockey Association, which had been in existence since... 1909. And all these leagues are vying for the Stanley Cup? <laughs> well, two of them are. Okay. Uh, the Pacific Coast Hockey Association and the National Hockey Association are. In 1914, uh, it had, uh, a custom had started where the winners of each of those two leagues then would play in a playoff series uh, for the right to claim the Stanley Cup. All right. So we have the National Hockey Association yes. and we have the Pacific League. Pacific Coast Hockey Pacific Coast, okay. This is complicated, isn't it? And these guys compete for, for the Stanley Cup, but the National Hockey Association, this is Central Central Canada? This is Central Canada, And right. it's having trouble. Uh, it is in trouble. What, um, what makes it troublesome in 1917? Well, um, first I should say that there was a lot of things that actually the National Hockey Association was doing right. Uh, and we we tend to think that well it's a you know it was a failure that somehow was uh, to use Frank Calder's uh, words the, f- the former president of the NHA and the the incoming president of the National Hockey League uh, a reorganization um, and so we tend to think that uh, well this was a, a signature of failure but um, there were quite a few things that the NHA was doing right and I think we need to as historians understand that bit of context as well. It was started in 1909 as um, an attempt to, uh, by Ambrose O'Brien and by the uh, head of the Montreal Wanderer Hockey Club, Jimmy Gardner, both had tried to get into the Canadian Hockey Association, which was at that time the elite professional organization of hockey, and they were uh, rejected. Mm. And so their their resolution to this was to band together, and with two teams, one from Cobalt, one from Haleybury, uh, to uh, form their own new elite professional hockey association, which then they, they called the National Hockey uh, Association. Cobalt and Haleybury. Yeah. <laughs> Real powerhouses. 
Well, real powerhouses in the sense of talent. Okay. Uh, you know, we're talking about a mining boom up in that region at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we've got lots of uh, single young men who, uh, who are um, muscular in uh, every sense of that word and uh, are finding their outlet for life in, uh, uh, in hockey, which I suppose is not a bad way. So, so this is the, the okay, to, to understand the alphabet soup going on here. So this is the mm. NHA. The NHA, right. And how many teams are in the NHA? The NHA uh, originally had teams in Cobalt, Haleybury, uh, two teams, uh, three teams in Montreal, um, Ottawa and Renfrew, seven teams in their original season. Uh, that gets reduced. Uh, at one time they have as few as four in 1911-12, uh, but by the end of the time, there are six teams in 1917, 1916-1917 uh, that play in the NHA. So the NHA, you're saying, is doing okay. It's not a fantastic success, but it has six teams playing, vying for a championship. They have six teams that are vying for a championship, uh, and uh, they're important for me in a number of different ways. Um, they're a place where we see some of the modern innovations of hockey uh, um, take place, and so we should understand them to, you know, to be the, the such as the, such as. Well, for example, uh, their owners were the first to impose a salary cap, whether you like that or not. Uh, here's a modern institution that's put being put in place. So some kind of business control over labor costs uh, is important. Now, Andy, I mean, that's a, actually, could you make money being a professional hockey player? I mean, would you were you well paid in those days? Some were. Really? Some were were uh, were paid uh, very good money. Mm. Um, so, for example, uh, Frederick Cyclone Taylor, who is is paid uh, uh, five thousand dollars for a, a twelve game season. That's more than a prime minister. That's more. That's uh, <laughs> and it's only a little bit less than what uh, Ty Cobb, who was playing in the uh, Major League Baseball at that Cyclone time. Cyclone Taylor made that kind of money. He sure did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and others made a little bit less. Frank and Lester Patrick, for example, played for Renfrew. Uh, they were paid $3,000 each for that season. Um, the Renfrew Creamery Kings. <laughs> right, a.k.a. the millionaires, because they played. They right. paid Cyclone Taylor and uh, the Patrick brothers that much money. So salary cap was salary caps, Im- yes. important. What else? Um, the other thing that's important is that um, they introduced six-man hockey, six-man which hockey. before 1911 didn't exist. The, you know, Before 1911, the game was a seven-man game. Uh, it reduced from the 1880s when, uh, during the Montreal Winter Carnival, there were nine men on the ice at one time. For this period, we had uh, seven-man hockey, which had uh, two wingers, a centerman, a rover, and then two defenders, wow. being called a cover point and a point. And so, um, ostensibly, as a cost-saving measure, one player was pulled off the ice. But as a result, it really changes the dynamics of the game. You know, the old seven-man game had the potential to be a real kind of slogging, uh, sometimes slow affair. This was, these were the days before uh, forward passing was allowed. Right, that's important. So an onside game meant that uh, you know you had to be uh, very careful in the kind of combination uh, scientific play that you had. More like um, rugby today. We see it in rugby, the, the, the backwards pass. Exactly so. Right, right. And... Uh, and what that meant was that when the ice got mucky, and it often did when you're playing in front of a few thousand people and many of them are smoking and, you know, you're indoors, mm-hmm. uh, 
that meant that uh, combination play just wasn't possible. So often in the early games, it re- the players resorted to this sort of lobbing technique, as they did in football before the onset of the forward pass, yes, where you would just, you know, it was the, the, the equivalent of a punt, right? right, right uh, defenders right. would take the puck, lob it up into the air, sometimes, you know, higher than the lights were, into the cigar smoke, <laughs> so that it would come down and, and give goaltenders and defenders trouble. Well, that got to be a bit of a boring affair. And so the most exciting play during that time or aspect of the game would have been the individual player rush. So right. guys like um, uh, Nuzi Lalonde and Cyclone Taylor and in the American context, uh, Hobie Baker, uh, were the most exciting players of the day because they were the most, the fastest and the best stick handlers and the ones who could do this kind of individual rush that the game allowed them to do. Now that's, that's all part of the NHA. This is all at the same time that the NHA is taking place. So, um, but the reduction, the NHA is the first league to reduce from seven to six players. Uh, by, by the early 1920s, virtually every league in North America, men's, uh, even when women play the game, uh, has reduced from seven players to six. It opens up the ice. It creates a little bit more flow, a little more capacity for combination play, but also a lot more capacity for individual stardom to happen and stardom is is important because of a a third innovation i would talk about not innovation so much as a kind of coincidence the nha comes of age at the same time when sports reportage really begins to take on a new kind of complexion more journalists are covering it well that's true yeah that what happens by the 19 teens is that uh, you know we see the development in newspapers like the montreal star and the globe in toronto and the toronto star the Winnipeg Free Press of a of a sports page that's dedicated specifically to the covering of sports. Mm. But in the 1890s, that didn't exist. You would go and you would find, you know, an account of a sports match that was somewhere peppered in among lo- other local stories. But now you've got this dedicated coverage, and um, this means that there are more stories being covered, uh, more uh, accounts, and... Um, more copy from other places. So the world of sports is getting smaller. You can live in Vancouver or you can live in New York City or you can live in London, England if you get these papers and find out what is happening uh, to uh, some elite team in Winnipeg or wherever. Now, again, it's striking that we're talking about World War I here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did not think of suspending professional hockey? Uh, They did. And, of course, there were the, you know, expected uh, out... uh, calls for, for suspension among ordinary people who thought, well, this is just what, um, this is what we should do in wartime. This is part of the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But the counter-argument then, as it was in the Second World War, was that uh, Canadians needed hockey more than ever before, elite hockey, as a form of, uh, uh, of taking their minds off of the great, awful stories that they're reading in the paper about right. uh, the news, you know, Right. And so uh, the, the NHA provides a couple of things. First, it provides this kind of relief from uh, overwhelming concerns. But they also actually incorporate a team of soldiers in Toronto, the 228th Regiment. Excellent. Tell me about that. Well, this comes uh, fairly late in their uh, existence. Uh, the 228th Battalion, it was called, in the 1916-1917 season. Uh, it was decided that um, this this battalion was actually uh, originated in North Bay, but uh, it's hockey players anyway, and some of the 
the others of it, uh, from what I understand, were moved to Toronto. Uh, and that uh, these players who are clad in khaki uniforms uh, would be a part of uh, the league. So they, 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 they played professionally? They played professionally. Um, they, they were uh, put in place to, um, you know, to show that the NHA is part of the war effort. But I think also there was another uh, uh, aspect here as well, which was there was another Toronto team, and the teams from uh, Montreal and from Ottawa and Quebec at that time thought, geez, that's a long trip to Toronto and it's expensive. So if we have two teams, it's actually worth making the trip. If there's only one, then it seems uh, less worth it. So this this 228th Battalion forms a team. It's part of the NHA. Do they actually complete the the year? Do they actually do they have playoffs? They don't. Uh, they get uh, activated in uh, early 1917. Oh, you're kidding! And so um, they're it, off to war. They're off to war, and uh, um, I'm not sure all of their players are off to war. And you know, in the Second World War. As in the First World War, uh, people who are hockey players who are enlisted somehow managed to um, um, not make it to the front. But uh, that's uh, another aspect of the story. So back to our story about the creation of the NHL. Sure. You're, 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 you're describing an NHA that's actually innovating in many different ways. Yeah. But but there's a feeling that it's not it's not it needs to go forward somehow. It needs to it needs to achieve a new level. Yes. Uh, what happens is there's you know, there's this continued drive uh, uh, amongst those folks who are in the NHA, those who are committed to commercial professional hockey. Remember, the, keep this in mind that at the same time, there are a great many people who are playing and organize hockey, uh, organizing hockey in Canada who are committed still to the amateur ideal. So right. this is a, a minority of people who are involved, uh, and they want to uh, continue to do that. Um, and they need to reduce competition and they need to secure labor supply. These are things that are driving the creation right. of the NHL. But, you know, the most uh, commonly referred to um, aspect is has to do with personalities. And really the straw that breaks the camel's back is the, the existence of the owner of the Toronto team, a man named Eddie Livingston. Tell us more about this man. This is the original Harold Ballard. Well, I suppose <laughs> I'd never thought of that connection, but, the, but yes. You know, Eddie this was Livingston. a difficult man. This man was not liked. He was not liked. He was hated by others. This is Eddie Livingston. Tell us more about him. Yeah, he um, his father had emigrated from Scotland to Canada, and his father had built a successful uh, printing business in Toronto, and so that afforded uh, Eddie and his uh, uh, siblings a respectable kind of middle class education and and lifestyle. And he grew up playing hockey for the St. George's Junior team. He wasn't by any accounts. Uh, you know, a scintillating player. He was more a more a plugger, I guess you might call him. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a, a small frame and uh, had vision problems, but he was <laughs> gritty, very gritty. Yes. So injury ends his playing career, and in 1908, like so many um, top sportsmen of the time, he becomes a journalist, sports editor with the Toronto Mail and Empire, mm. and begins to write stories about the hockey games that he was refereeing in and that he was... Um, later uh, uh, managing. So um, he's got this uh, background in the game. Um, The opportunity comes for him to um, purchase one of the teams in the NHA. He buys the Toronto Ontarios, as they're called, in 1914. He renames them the Toronto Shamrocks for that season, 1914-15. And then, one year later, he sells the Shamrocks 
and buys the Toronto Blue Shirts, as they come to be known, in 1915-1960. But, but the, the, the bottom line about Livingston is that he was always um, a contrarian. And the other owners in the league found him to be uh, regularly uh, a thorn in their side, pain in the neck, mm. cantankerous, one, one historian <laughs> calls him. So he would feud over league schedules and about uh, arena contracts and about player rights and trades. Um, in fact, Frank Calder at one stage calls him a, a lunatic, which is not really one of those words you can take back. This is the Frank Calder of the Calder Trophy. Let's... That's the same one who That's had the been one. the secretary-treasurer of the National right. Hockey Association and becomes right. the first president of the of the NHL. So the NHL is, is, is then therefore a conspiracy to get rid of Eddie Livingston? Well, in part, yeah, yeah, in part. And I think that's the biggest reason why the NHL comes about as it does. Does it work? It does. So we have a new league born in December of 1917. What are the teams on this league? Uh, in 1917, we have teams yes. in Montreal and in um, Ottawa, a team that was supposed to be in Quebec, uh, but that ultimately um, isn't able to make a go of it because of lack of, of players and principally lack of capital. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, a Toronto team is put in in the first NHL season, oh, okay. uh, but it's one that uh, is not going to be run by Eddie Livingston. It's the, a team that's going to be run out of the Mutual Street Arena in Toronto called the Arenas. The Toronto Arenas. That's right. So we have the Ottawa Senators... We have the Toronto Arenas, mm -hmm. and you're saying two teams from Montreal, and of course the Canadiens was one of those. The other team was the the Montreal uh, Wanderers. The Wanderers. So we have four team league, a four team league. That's how it started. And and you're saying the the the, the Quebec they were the Bulldogs, right? Quebec Bulldogs. The Quebec right. Bulldogs did not make it. Did not make it. So um, the first game is held on uh, my notes tell me on the 19th of December, That's 1917. Right. Two games, actually. Two games, Are wow. held uh, simultaneously on that night. Montreal Canadiens traveled to Ottawa and uh, beat them 7-4 to four in front of a, a 5,000 to 6,000 estimated uh, uh, fans. That's quite respectable. It is, yeah. And uh, it was a game, a good game. Uh, <laughs> the Canadians went ahead 3 nothing in the first period. If you're a Canadiens fan, you'd like that. Yeah. And they led uh, throughout the game. Now, uh, let's, let's again. Let's emphasize here: the the uh, Canadien Montréal had uh, Georges Vizina as goaltender. Well, they had a number of star players. Uh, yes. At, oh, at who time. else? Who else? Uh, well, in those days, uh, Jack Laviolette was their manager, and so it was his uh, his responsibility for trying to find the the top talent of uh, of um, uh, among French Canada. This was the whole idea. In fact, it was uh, Ambrose O'Brien's idea. Mm. Uh, originally with the NHA, uh, that there should be a team in Montreal, in, from East End Montreal, that um, focuses on that constituency, become a kind of an emblem for that. Not because uh, Ambrose O'Brien had any kind of great natural interest in French-Canadian nationalism, but uh, because he saw dollar signs, and so um, they did that. Now, uh, Montreal had uh, was not wholly... Uh, um, uh, francophone players. You know, for example, one of their players at the time was a guy called Bad Joe Hall, who uh, had won a, a Stanley Cup championship with the Kenora Thistles back in 1907. But it was a nickname that um, that suited him uh, perfectly. He seemed to get in trouble uh, in just about every game. And in this game, 
the game he played against Ottawa in the, on December 19. He ended up with uh, a, a four, sorry, three minor penalties and a major penalty for what uh, the Montreal Star reporter called hurling <laughs> Ottawa's George Boucher into the fence or the boards, as they called. So violence was there. It was a rough sport, wasn't it? In the it? early days, yeah. it was a rough sport. It was very much. It was so. a rough sport. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my understanding is that the even the hockey sticks weren't re- regulated. No, hockey sticks weren't regulated, nor really was uh, any of the other uh, equipment. Although by that time, the sporting goods industry had begun to take shape. Okay. And so by the second decade of the 20th century, you've got star skates, you've got um, the Spalding uh, Empire uh, that uh, are providing these kind of um, industrially produced sticks and uh, padding of all sorts and pucks and advertising them regularly in hockey programs and newspapers. And and the same sort of advertising too, right? If you want to become a great star like New Zealand alone, if you want to become a great star like... Um, uh, one of the others, the Patrick brothers, whomever, right. uh, then you need to buy this stuff. Or Joe Malone. Or Joe Malone. Joe Malone. Let's not forget Joe Malone. That's right. Now, okay, so uh, again, in 1917, there's going to yeah. be the, the first league, the first the first season of the NHL will, will last for a couple of months. I mean, most of the games are outside or are they inside now? Oh, they're all inside and played in inside. indoor arenas, yeah. They have to be indoors. I mean, okay. it's, it's essential to any kind of commercial venture. You've got to have that turnstile. An artificial ice exists? An artificial uh, ice exists in some of these barns. It becomes, after 1917, uh, more and more um, adopted by uh, by elite rinks. But, Again, uh, a sign of the professionalization of the sport, uh, the, the entertainment value of the sport. You don't want that. You were describing slushy ice earlier. You want to keep the game fast. I'd call it uh, part of the branding of the game, mm-hmm. that in order to provide a regular... Um, uh, a bit of entertainment that people can expect is going to be standard every time, whether it's in March or early December. Uh, you need to uh, have artificial light. Right. So um, is they, who, who wins the NHL that year? Uh, in the first season, uh, the Toronto team wins, oddly. Uh, really? The team that was sort of an afterthought that comes into being. Um, they beat uh, Montreal in the in the playoffs okay. in the 1917-18 season. So this is the spring of 1918. Did they win a trophy? Uh, they win the Stanley Cup. They oh, go, it's the Stanley they go Cup. on, of course, and they play the winner of the PCHA, which is the Vancouver Millionaires. And they win the Stanley Cup. And they win the Stanley Cup, the first uh, NHL. Was there was there a, was there a, a trophy for the NHL alone or? Yeah, there was. But they wind up. So the the Toronto team actually wins the the first season even though it was, as you say, a sort of an afterthought, really to spite Eddie Livingston. What happens to Eddie Livingston? Does he stay away? I mean, is the NHL finally, uh, does it win its battle against Livingston? Does it keep him out? Livingston doesn't stay away. No, he, oh. he continues to be a, a thorn <laughs> in the side. In fact, um, what happened was uh, the NHA owners had met in the early fall of 1917, and um, in Livingston's absence, had uh, decided that they were going to suspend the NHA for a season. And having suspended the NHA, they then went, and on the 22nd of November 1917, formed a new league with him not there. Sort of an um, uh, underhanded move, some would say. But, um, uh, you know, Livingston is left out in the cold. So you've got this paper league, the NHA, that is still remaining behind, and Livingston's got his team, which is really the only 
the only team in the league that, right. that still wants to play. So he, he continues on, and uh, it becomes apparent in the following year that the NHL owners have no desire to see the NHA uh, have new life blown into it, and so he takes them to court. Wow. Now, uh, in the end, he doesn't win, but he doesn't leave hockey entirely. In fact, for the next decade or so, he continues to try to chip away at this big uh, NHL uh, league uh, and to try to um, stay in professional hockey in some sort. So, for example, in a decade later, 1927, he's one of the people who's leading the charge to establish in the American Hockey Association, which is a feeder league by this stage to the NHL, a franchise in uh, Chicago called the Cardinals. And the NHL can't have that because they've got the Blackhawks who are there by this stage. Oh. Uh, and both clubs uh, are so- trying to sign the, the same players. And so um, ultimately uh, it comes to a, a point. The other AHA owners who are leaned on by the NHL say to him, uh, you can't... Uh, do this because we need the good graces of the NHL. The NHL won't sign an agreement with us for an affiliation unless uh, you're out of the picture. And so he's forced to sell his interest in the Chicago team in 1933. This man is really disliked. He is. He's really wow. disliked. But you've got to admire him a little bit for his pluck. <laughs> okay, let's finish this off then. The NHL has started. Uh, you're saying there's some innovation. The forward pass will be introduced by the NHL eventually? It or? is, yeah. By the late 1920s, they began experimenting with the forward pass through uh, the middle zone, and then they open it up later uh, to uh, all over the ice. So that uh, is an innovation that changes the game yet again. The game's faster. It's more exciting. Uh, and the NHL is really set on its uh, on its track to, to dominate um to dominate professional hockey. That's it. It becomes the brand. It becomes the gold standard, as it were, uh, and not just in Canada, but uh, in the United States, of course, after its expansion to uh, Boston in 1924 and New York in 1925 and again 1926, and arguably um, in Europe as well, although uh, the uh, Atlantic for some time poses a, uh, uh, a bit of a psychological distance for um, European hockey players. They they try during the 20s and 30s to develop their own kind of brand of hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that uh, certainly in the last half of the 20th century, it's the NHL brand that, that rises triumphant and becomes, as I say, the gold standard in hockey. So Andy, as we observe the 100th anniversary of the NHL, um, you're, you're painting a picture here of an evolution more than a revolution. It's really something that grows out of the uh, National Hockey Association um, that that slowly that, that that conquers the Livingston problem. Uh, Toronto is still very much a part of it as a result of the Toronto Arenas. They win the championship. They win the Stanley Cup. They move on to some uh, interesting uh, technological developments in the sense of better ice, uh, uh, new rules to the game, uh, forward pass. Um, but what should what, what should we remember about 1917 then, and as a, as a as a place marker in the evolution of professional hockey in Canada and North America? Yeah. Um, well, I think like most uh, dates of commemoration, uh, as historians, we want to uh, maybe overemphasize one particular moment, one particular date uh, for being the founding moment, that sort of thing. We have a propensity to, uh, to look for firsts, quote-unquote. Uh, Americans do it with uh, their quest for... Uh, finding the first 
baseball game ever played, for example. And so my, uh, I guess my response to that would be a caution that, um, uh, as in so many things uh, Canadian, um, that that this was, as you suggest, uh, uh, an evolutionary time. Yes, there was a step forward with a new name, with a new kind of complexion, with a new kind of identity. But the NHL was heir in so many ways to um, innovations that were made in the previous eight seasons. And so uh, we shouldn't forget the NHA for what it provides to us, uh, even as we celebrate uh, December of 1917 for the NHL. Well, thank you very much for uh, for helping us understand the, the significance of this milestone, Andrew. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. This was an installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and my guest was Andrew Holman of Bridgewater University in Massachusetts. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on December 8th, 2017. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst and Sumit Dami. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.